Pray with me. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity we have to be here this morning. Uh, Lord, before we go out and uh, celebrate this day with uh, loved ones, friends, uh, family, uh, we want to make sure that uh, we didn't leave here without encountering you. Um, we know you inhabit the praises of your people, but there's something uh, special about opening your word and encountering Christ there. So we ask that in the next few moments as we, as we crack open the Bible, that you would crack us open and do what you want inside of us. Uh, may we leave here changed. May we leave here transformed because of the work you did in us through your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I'm not very much of a news junkie. I, I know some of you maybe are. Um, I, I, I tend to shy away from the news because it hurts to watch. It hurts to see the headlines. And um, I'm not attracted to things that hurt, so I kind of stay away. I feel bad for staying away, though. Because I don't want to put my head in the sand and pretend like I don't see the wickedness that's happening in the world. I don't want to put my head in the sand and pretend like, ah, oh, I'm just closing my ears. I don't want to listen to the bad things that are happening in the world. Bad things do happen in the world. And in fact, we should do our best to be aware of the things that are happening in the world. You know, one of the, one of the main questions that you're going to get as a Christian is this problem of evil. And I, I think we do a bad job of answering this problem. When people approach you and, and, and point to things in the headlines, uh, uh, just happened recently, uh, two bombs were, were, were blown up, two bus bombs went off in Nairobi, killing three, injuring 62. Uh, what, what kind of person creates a bomb and plants it on a bus to blow people up? Well, what, kind, what kind of person does that? An evil person? Is that a category? Are, are there people that are just driven by evil motives? We can pretend like those kind of people don't exist because maybe in our day-to-day suburban life we don't come into too much contact with it. But, I mean, it's not just Nairobi. It happens here. Remember last year, the, the Boston Marathon with the back, backpacks that went off there. Well, what kind of person bombs a marathon? There's little kids around and stuff like that. What kind of person does that? What do you do with that theologically? In your faith, in your whole system, your worldview of God, and He's a good God, and, and we worship Him because He's kind, what category do you put that event in? When someone approaches you and says, what, 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 what is God doing when he looks at that? We kind of get a little squirrely, don't we? I mean, we kind of backpedal a little bit. Well, God, you know, free will and people do what they want. Well, that's sort of true. But what that does is it kind of makes God look like he's up there like, I don't know. I mean, I made free will. It's gotten out of hand. I, you know, it's like there's bombs going off. I mean, just, just pray. I don't know. Is that what God is doing up there, like shrugging his shoulders? Is he like rubbing his head? Is he trying to figure things out? Is he out of control? What, 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 what do we say to somebody? Even worse, to up the ante. Someone comes to you, and it's not some newspaper clipping. They've experienced a personal, deep pain. A heinous, evil act was committed, and they were the victim. And they come to you and they say, I want to draw near to God, but I can't believe this happened to me. What do you, what do you give them? John three sixteen and call me in the morning? What passage do you turn them to? Such that they would garner comfort 
from that passage. I think we as Christians oftentimes have an anemic understanding of who God is. It's a weak understanding because we pluck the verses that talk about He's loving. We talk about the verses that make Him seem fluffy and kind. And those things are true, but it's not balanced out by the other things that Scripture tells us about who God is. And because we turn a blind eye to those passages, we don't know how to respond to these people. God, how are we supposed to respond to them? He's like, well, read my whole Bible. There are a few Psalms. I don't know if any of you have ever read through the Psalms. Man, you'll go through some Psalms, you know, and you're like, wow, God is just such a source of comfort. He's, he's just so gracious. He's kind. He's a shepherd. He's a rock. You know, this is, this is, these are great Psalms to read. And then, and then you, you'll hit a Psalm that's kind of weird. It, it, it doesn't do what we tend to do when we witness evil. We witness evil, and our first instinct is to let God off the hook. We witness evil, and our first thing is, well, God didn't intend that. God didn't mean that. Well, God didn't. That's not what some of these psalms do. In fact, when David witnessed evil, he took it to God in a different way than you and I, I think, sometimes do. We're going to look at Psalm 5 this morning. Let's look at Psalm 5. David, we don't know what the, what the exact circumstance is, and I think that's intentional because he wants you to think your circumstance. What evil has happened to you? What thing are you struggling with? What wickedness are you witnessing that's prompting feelings inside of you that, that are um, feelings of anger? Feelings of a desire for justice to happen? a desire for wickedness to be stamped out somehow, that this shouldn't be? He takes it to God in this way, Psalm chapter 5. The first thing he does before he even gets to his request is he just asks to be heard. Will you hear me, God? Will you hear me out, God, please? In a moment of desperation, when you feel like God is far away and you feel like God is not paying attention, this is an appropriate way to begin your prayer. You know theologically that God is listening, but your emotions don't feel it. So he's coming alongside those emotions and saying, God, give ear to my words, O Lord. And he knows that because God is God, not a pin drop happens in the earth without him hearing it. But he doesn't want God to hear it. He wants God to listen. He wants God to respond to his prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Please pay, pay attention to this. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. Even when I run out of words and all I have is sort of our inarticulate sounds just coming out that are they're doing their best to express the words that are in my heart. Listen to those. David is in pain. But it's not a, 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 a necessarily a physical pain. It's not a disease. It's wickedness that he witnesses from those who rebel against God. Now he has a couple verses. He's still not into his prayer request yet. Now a few verses on why God should listen. He's kind of making a case. Please, you have, to, you have to listen to this prayer request. You have to respond to this wickedness I'm witnessing. And here's why. Because you're my king. The second half of verse 2. Because you're my God. And for to you do I pray. I'm not praying to some idol. I'm not, praying, I'm not wishing upon a star. 
I'm coming to a personal, powerful, omnipotent God, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and I'm praying to you. Verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. First thing in the morning, I'm not thinking about anything else. Before I even eat breakfast, I'm right there presenting this request to you. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Well, what is he watching? He's watching for the Lord to respond. He puts the prayer request there and he's waiting for God to do something. He's waiting for God to take action. So he continues his case. Why should God listen to that? When he watches, why should God respond? For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. The reason why you should respond to wickedness, God, is because you don't like it. I know you don't like it. You like it. You, you, you have a, a lower tolerance of it than I do. If God is holy, in Him there's no darkness at all, John tells us. So he has no, you have no tolerance for wickedness. So he's making a case, making a case. Have you ever done that as a kid with your parent? And you're making a case? Well, Dad, you know, because, because of this, if you do this, then that. And sometimes if a kid makes a good point, it's like, you know what? That's a good point. I'm going to do that. And so God is like that with his children. He wants to hear, well, what is your reasoning? Why do you want this? And David is saying, well, it has to do with you. It's not me. It's not just a selfish request. This is about you. And you don't tolerate wickedness. So why is wickedness happening and these wicked people are getting away with it? Why is that the case? He says, you're not a God who delights in wickedness. You don't delight in it. You don't like it. Evil may not dwell with you. God's existence and the existence of evil, they're, they're incompatible. God can't just be okay with it. God can't just wrap his arm around the existence of evil and be like, hey, let's do this, let's tag team this. No. Evil can't come alongside with you. Evil, you can't be okay with evil. Evil doesn't dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Those who do wicked things and get away with it and boast because they're getting away with it, they shouldn't stand. They shouldn't be able to do whatever they want and get away with it and, and keep walking. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Hmm. You hate all evildoers? Does that sound like the Christian bumper sticker, God hates the sin but loves the sinner? Would David put that bumper sticker on his chariot? I'm not sure. Because there's an element of truth to it that God so loved the world He gave His Son. Obviously, there's a sense in which God loves those that He knit together in their mother's wombs. We know that's the case. But what David is getting at is that God will not separate the action from the actor. Someone who stands in direct defiance to God. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to blow up a bus because I feel like it. I'm going to kidnap girls because I don't think they should be educated. Whatever their reasoning is, they stand in defiance against what's good and what's right. And God will not say, well, you know, but I love them. He's not going to separate the actor from their actions. He can't. That wouldn't be just. And so in their action of wickedness, they stand against God. They're enemies of God. Therefore, God stands against them. He doesn't just stand against what they did. He stands against them personally. And so it's in that sense that David is saying God hates the, the evildoer because he can't separate what they did from who they are. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. 
but I'm different, God. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Notice he doesn't say, but I, because I'm so awesome, will enter your house. I'm different from them because I never do wickedness. No, because you've called me into a relationship with you, and I, because I have this relationship with you, it's, ba- it's based on your abundance of steadfast love. And because of that, I will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. I fear you. These people do wicked things because they could care less about who you are. They don't think you exist, or they think you exist, but you're a chump. I know you're a God and, and, and who's powerful and who's just and will stamp out wickedness. Therefore, I need to come to you in forgiveness and repentance and, and absorb the love that you've given me, the opportunity you've given me to have a relationship with you. So I'll come into your temple because I fear you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Now, what is he saying there? What he's saying is righteous people should be blessed of God. And wicked people should be condemned by God. I mean, if you're living your life in direct defiance of God, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have an awesome, prosperous life. And if you live your life uh, for God, fearing God, uh, underneath the, the sacrifice that's covered for you, well, then you shouldn't experience uh, condemnation. The wicked shouldn't be able to look at your situation and laugh at you. And so there's this deal of retribution. You should repay those who do evil, repay them, with condemnation and those who fear you, you should rescue them and protect them. Now, David had a limited understanding of retribution. We have a fuller understanding of retribution, and this is where the prosperity gospel guys go wrong. They take this verse and say, look, if you're righteous, you should have an awesome life, and if you're wicked, you should have a terrible life. Problem is twofold. One, if that were always true, why would David write this? What's David's problem then? If the wicked always can never prosper, and the righteous always prosper, this psalm wouldn't exist. He's wrestling with the fact that it's not always true. Well, why, why are the wicked prospering in their wickedness, and I'm trying to be righteous, and, and I'm suffering at their hands, these bloodthirsty liars that are spreading lies about me? Show them to be wrong, and show me to be right. Now, some people think, okay, that was Old Testament, and then in the New Testament, Jesus said, look, you know, Sometimes the tower falls on you. Sometimes it falls on them. Just repent. Jesus didn't change it. Jesus just opened the door wider and showed us a bigger picture. It's like if if you've ever pulled up to a house, maybe a friend's house, you've never been inside, and you look at the outside, and you're like, wow, that's kind of a, a modest house. It's small. You know, it's cute. And then you walk in, and there's hallways, doors, it keeps going, and it just, there's upstairs, there's a whole basement level you didn't see, and then when you're inside, you look at your spouse and go, wow. Actually, this house is really large. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You saw from one perspective on the outside, and you had one understanding of it, and you went inside, you got a fuller understanding of really what the layout is. The house didn't change. Your perspective was enhanced. And so what David is picking up on here is a general truth, that God will condemn evil. God is against the wicked person, and God will prosper the righteous person. What David wasn't fully able to see in the way that we're able to see it is that on this side of eternity, it doesn't always work out like that. But it will. On this side of eternity, sometimes it seems like the wicked are prospering. 
Sometimes it seems like the righteous are suffering and there's no answer to it. But in the end, it will get wrapped up. So David is picking up on something that we have a fuller understanding of. But I want you to not miss the heart of this psalm. The heart of this psalm is the desire to see wickedness stamped out and taking it to God and requesting that He do it. And so what David is realizing is that God can be trusted to settle accounts with the wicked. They're not going to get away with it. Oh, it might seem like they're getting away with it right now. It might seem like they're getting away with it for a year. Maybe there's certain cases where the wicked person commits evil acts all the way until their natural death in the end. God will settle accounts with that person. And so when we look at this, rather than go, oh, David, why are you praying for God to go against people, you know? What if it was your mother that was dragged away in in the Holocaust under Nazi Germany? What would you do with those feelings? How can people do something so wicked, so so heinous? How can they blindly follow this fear and, 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 and take people and, and stick them in gas chambers and turn it on and, and, and just mass graves? How, how, could you, how could you go along with that? How could you do that? What do you, what do, you do with that? Shouldn't justice happen? When you become a Christian, does that mean, well, justice just gets erased? We believe in a God that just erases all things. No. God saw that. And God will take care of it. And David is approaching God in the, in the hope, in the trust, in the understanding that God doesn't tolerate wickedness and that God will vindicate David. He will show that the wicked are wrong and the righteous are blessed and have favor. He says in verse 9, there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. In other words, it's not just what they say. It's not just because they're spreading lies. It's because inside... They're, they're, they're bent on destruction and they're in, in self-destruct mode. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, oh God. Is that okay to pray? Make them bear their guilt, God. Please, will you please do away with this wicked person? Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions, because of all these sins that they commit. Cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. Now notice, David doesn't say, cast them out because they hurt me. This is about God. This isn't about me. Do you remember when he killed Goliath, what his reasoning was? He didn't go, what? Somebody said something about Israel? I'm an Israelite. Don't say anything about Israel when when I'm an Israelite. He didn't say that. He said, how can he say that about Israel when Israel's God's people? This This guy's... a massive human being compared to me. But he's not offending me. He's offending God. And in front of God, he's a chump. God is so awesome, he keeps a little boy like me with a couple stones from the brook and a slingshot and take care of this guy. Because God's going to do it. God's not going to let this guy slander his own people. God's not going to let it. And that's why that was David's motivation. It was God's feelings. God's glory. God's honor. And so what David's saying is this, it's, yes, it affects me, it hurts me, but why I want justice to happen is so that you will be known as a just God because they're transgressing your laws because they have rebelled, verse 10, 
against you. So David is trusting that God will settle accounts with the wicked. And when he prays something like, make them bear their guilt, O God, it is not wrong for someone like you or me, a Christian, to pray that. It is not wrong to pray that God enact justice. Is it right for God to punish wickedness? The answer to that has to be yes, because if the answer to that was no, we'd have a real serious problem with what Scripture reveals to us about God. Of course it's right for God to punish justice, or for, to, to punish the wicked. Of course it's right. And if that's something that's right for God to do, we can pray for that to happen. We should long for that to happen. We shouldn't have opposite feelings from what is right. We should come alongside with God's feelings with what is right. So right now, if you're like me, you're sitting in your chair and you have a conflict in your heart. On the one hand, I'm reading a psalm like this and we're supposed to come to God and we're supposed to be able to say, God, here's a bunch of wickedness happening. Stamp them out. Take care of them. Help them catch those bombers. Help them be arrested. Help them to be taken out. Can I pray that? Because on the other side of my heart, I have this whole love your enemies, turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you. What? What about all of those passages that don't sound like if I'm loving my enemy, how can I pray this against my enemies? Well, very interestingly enough, verse 9 right there. Uh, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. This passage, this piece was on Paul's mind when he wrote one of those passages in Romans that tell us not to repay evil for evil i want to take us there real quick put your finger here or you can look on the screen we'll put it up there for you we're gonna look at romans 12 jesus tells us to love our enemies and that's true guys that's true but paul here is telling us why he says bless those who persecute you when people do evil things to you especially because you're a christian and they're doing it to you bless them back don't persecute them back Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. In other words, when other people experience persecution, come alongside them. But don't go after the person persecuting them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be cocky. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, don't, 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 when someone does, does something evil to you, don't do something evil back. Bless them in return. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Why? Because God doesn't like vengeance. No. Because God is against vengeance. No. Because vengeance is wrong. No. Here's why. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. What's the reasoning? Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, and this is from Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The reason why God tells you not to take vengeance into your own hands is not because vengeance is wrong. The reason why God tells you not to take vengeance into your own hands is because that's mine, he's saying. I'm going to do it. I know the exact penalty for the exact crime. I know how to make it even, square. And it's my duty. That's my responsibility. I get that role. And so, 
Vengeance is not evil. Vengeance is right. But it's God's right, not ours. Well, did David get it wrong? No, David didn't get it wrong because in this psalm, he's asking God to step in and he's, by doing that, he's saying, I'm going to put this prayer request before you and watch. In other words, I'm not going to do it. You remember when he had the opportunity to kill Saul and he didn't? And he just sliced off a little piece of the garment. He's like, hey, could have had you, but you're God's anointed, so I don't want to mess with you. David does not want to take vengeance into his own hands. And that's why he's praying. Our problem is we don't want to take vengeance in our own hands, but we also think it's wrong to ask God to take it into his own hands, and that's not wrong. God is supposed to do it because that's his role. That's his responsibility. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What Paul is saying in that passage is that by you not taking vengeance in your own hands, you have a different responsibility. When you come into contact with someone who's evil, when you come into contact with someone who's wicked, you don't take vengeance in your own hands. Instead, you realize that there's a wrath coming for them that you wouldn't wish upon anybody. But in this momentary time, before that door of that ark is shut, so to speak, before Jesus comes up and wraps all history together, before there's no more opportunity for repentance, love on them. Love on them because your loving acts are going to heap coals on their head. Now, there's a debate about what that means. They're heaping coals on their head. When you read through the Old Testament, coals almost always refer to God's divine judgment. So when someone does something evil to you and you do something kind back, it's making their act worse. They, they curse you and you bless them back. And then they curse you again. See, but if you curse them back, then it becomes tit for tat. And before long, you don't even remember who started the fight. But if you bless them in return, they slash your tire, you buy them a new set of tires. What? Who in the world does that? Now, they slash your tire and you buy them a new set of tires and then they blow up your vehicle. That's worse. And so the, there's more divine judgment heaping on their head. The hope in this passage is that they would, under, they, they would feel the weight of that guilt and repent. Because the window of repentance is only so short. And sometimes the only hope that somebody has when they're evil, when they're bent on evil, the only hope that they have is contact with a person who completely destroys their world view. When they take that evil act and return good instead. Now, many of us in here, we go, yeah, we're supposed to bless our enemies. We're supposed to love them back. How do I do that when I'm filled with so much anger toward them? How do I do that when I have so much indignation in me and we don't realize that those feelings are good and those feelings are right? There's a quote. uh, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, a reflection on the Psalms. He said, the absence of indignation may be an alarming symptom. In other words, if you see evil and you're like, hmm, I'm not angry then you, probably, you might have a spiritual problem, says C.S. Lewis. You should be able to see wickedness and have an indignation inside of you. This should bomb. Buses shouldn't be bombed. Marathon, that kid should still be alive. That guy should still have his legs. That's wrong. You should not be passive like, eh, well, you know, marathons get bombed. We live in a bad world. What are you going to do? David knew what to do. He took it to God and asked God to step in and do something. Bullock, who wrote uh, an introduction to uh, the Psalms, he said, we should be disturbed about sin and aroused for righteousness. 
sin should disturb us. When you watch that news, yeah, it should hurt, and it should make you angry. It's a righteous anger, because that shouldn't be happening. Now, how can we possibly come along those feelings and still extend kindness to someone? I think when we have an understanding of God's vengeance and we take that off of our shoulders, that vengeance should happen, we take it off our shoulders and lay it in God's lap and go, you know what, God's going to take care of that. I don't have to worry about that. God is going to settle accounts with the wicked. Well, then I don't have to go after them. I don't have to hate them. I don't have to, I don't have to think of plots of how to take them out. Let God handle that. My responsibility is the slim hope it might seem impossible, but Jesus said what's well, impossible with man is possible with God, that they would get to experience what I experienced. The last two verses of this psalm. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with, as a, with a shield. Now one day everyone is going to experience wrath unless you're under that shield. One day everyone's going to experience punishment. Because you know what? At the end of the day, that heinous act is on a way higher spectrum than your act, but you're still an actor of wickedness. David knows he's messed up. That's why he prepares sacrifices to even lift this prayer request. That's why the whole temple system is in place, and that's why he's begging God's audience to listen to his prayer. Because he knows he doesn't deserve to be heard. He's wicked too. What is the difference? The difference is that he's under God's refuge. He experiences God's protection because of that little lamb that gets sacrificed. In John 5.22, Jesus said, The Father has taken all judgment and he's given it to me. On that day, it's not the Father that's going to go, You're out, you're in. Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. Why? Because he's the lamb. When that uh, angel of death passed over uh, the, the, the homes, uh, the firstborn that were protected is because they slaughtered a lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and they were covered. They were atoned for. And so death passed over because death was taken for them. And guys, our responsibility, our job is to point people, however wicked they are, however much they've hurt you, whatever they've done to you, our job is to point them to that last opportunity they have to experience a covering, to experience refuge. But if they don't, you don't have to wrestle with the feelings of what is God going to do about it? Does God not care? Does, is God not just? No, He is just. When someone comes to you and asks you, what does God do about that? Oh, He does about that. But it's not right now. No, it may not be right now. But can I turn, to you, uh, turn you to a passage in Revelation to talk about how God's going to deal with this stuff? I had a professor in counseling who said that he, he counseled, I've shared this with some of you before, but for those of you who have not heard this, I think it's very powerful. He had a long line of counseling uh, sexual abuse victims. And he'd give them a few verses to, to read, to memorize, to learn, and to comfort. One woman said, these verses don't comfort me. These, these verses don't help me. I finally, finally found a verse that helps me, that gives me comfort. Of all the evil that happened to me, all the trauma that happened to me as a, as a child that, that causes me to wake up in the middle of the night, you know, whatever, the pain that, that's been wreaked in my life. But finally, a verse that brings comfort to me. 
what verse is that? And she takes him to Revelation where Jesus rides his horse, the sword is coming out of his mouth, and he's chopping all the wicked people down. Brings comfort to me. He's like, what? That's not a comforting verse. Yes, it is. If you're wondering what happens to wickedness, what does God do with evil? He settles accounts. And you can trust that and free yourself up to do what your heart is supposed to do. Introduce people to verse 11 and 12, that hope that still lingers while there's time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, the Bible is not just sort of a, a one-sided, monolithic uh, voice about who you are, but there's so many textures, so many varying different kinds of aspects of, of who you are, but they're not in conflict with each other. So we, as we seek to get a fuller picture of who you are, help us to not avoid the ones that are difficult, but to embrace them because they're still a part of the same beautiful God, a God that doesn't delight in bus bombings, a God that is not okay with marathon bombings, a God that doesn't smile or doesn't feel tickled and doesn't think it's amusing whatsoever when women are kidnapped. But you will one day settle accounts. For our part, help us to increase our voice. Uh, Give us unprecedented love uh, to proclaim your gospel, to respond to personal injury with blessing. And as difficult as that is, Lord, help us to realize that uh, they will face your vengeance if they don't turn to you. We take comfort, Lord, that you don't let a bunch of strings just go unattached. We take comfort that you are a God who wraps things up in a right way, in a just way, in a way that would be much more just than if we took it into our own hands. So Father, every single person in here who struggles with unforgiveness, I pray that they would be able to lay that at your feet and request that you would handle it and watch. For every person in here that has a hard time communicating with those who have hurt us and haven't repented, who maybe try to continue to hurt us, help us to love them back, to not repay evil, because that would be stealing from you something that belongs to you. Help us to do that. Help us to be loving and help us to trust that you will take care of all the loose ends. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand and